Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. From the Gert Boyle Studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. In 1623, seven years after Shakespeare died, 36 of his plays were published in what became known as the First Folio. It was a world-changing book. Without it, about half of Shakespeare's plays would have been lost forever, meaning no Macbeth, no Julius Caesar, no Twelfth Night, or As You Like It. To mark the 400th anniversary of this first folio, a months-long celebration is taking place across Portland. It includes a variety of live performances, an exhibit at the Central Library, film screenings of Romeo and Juliet and other adapted works, and free public talks. Jonathan Walker is a professor of English at Portland State University. He created this celebration. He joins us now to talk about it. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I want to start with that the, this basic fact that without this book, these plays would have disappeared. What does that mean? Why weren't they somehow preserved before Shakespeare died? That's a great question. There were 19 of Shakespeare's plays that had been printed in earlier, smaller formats. Um, But there's really very little evidence that Shakespeare tried to preserve any of his work in print. Um, He was a man of the stage. Uh, He owned shares in the company to which he he belonged and wrote plays for. Um, And so 18 of his plays simply... Could, could have been lost to history. Is, and how much of this is about Shakespeare and how much is about an, uh, what theater was? I mean, you can go to a bookstore now and you can buy plays. People mm-hmm. can read them. Obviously, mm-hmm. a lot of us had to slash got to read Shakespeare mm-hmm. as literature in mm-hmm. classes. But would that have made sense to people in Elizabethan times just sitting in with a candle reading a play? For some it would have, yes, but um, I think the the question of literacy uh, comes into play Mm -hmm. um, because literacy rates were so much lower in the period. the, the pastime of going to the theater was was much more widespread, I would say, than actually reading plays. Uh, there were lots of plays that were available and in print, um, but um, and they were relatively cheap. Um, but again, literacy rates had had an had an impact on that. Relatively cheap for a single printed play. Yes. But what about this? This first folio. Can you describe first of all? I mean, you've you've held it, right? Uh, one of one of the hundreds of copies, or however yes. many there are. Mm-hmm. What was that like? It was cool. <laughs> uh, it was. I was in graduate school. I was at the Newberry Library in Chicago, um, and uh, the first folio is a very large book. Um, and at the time, it was the most expensive uh, collection. It was the most expensive dramatic book that uh, had ever been produced for the, the English reading public. Mm. Um, so there was, when it was produced, there was no guarantee that it was actually going to sell and, and make money. So Did it? Was it a commercial success? It was eventually a commercial success. Um, uh, printed in 1623. Um, in 1632, a second folio appeared, uh, which tells us that uh, it had sold out uh, in nine years, and so they replenished the market with with uh, a second folio. Hmm. So, who would have bought these gigantic books? Um, they were at the time they were still uh, as they are today, the uh, sort of an elite. Uh, commodity. Um, rich people bought them. Um, 
they were uh, purchased by uh, the Bodleian Library, for instance, uh, purchased a copy very early in uh, 1624. Um, and there is a whole list of, of uh, clerics and, and other noblemen who, uh, who, who had purchased the book early on. Hmm. Do you have a guess as to what Shakespeare would have thought about this sort of big compendium, a written version for the elite of his plays? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good question, and I don't, I don't have an answer for it because, I mean, frankly, we know so little about Shakespeare the person. We do know that he was a man of the theater, like I said, for, for decades. Um, but um, the only evidence we have that he ever put anything through the press himself were his two early poems, uh, his long narrative poems in the early 1690s um, that were uh, uh, dedicated to a nobleman and were designed basically to get patronage. Um, but the, again, no evidence uh, that, not any firm evidence that he tried to put in any of his plays through the press. How do you think about the, the cultural impact of this book's publication. Where do you um, even start? Um, it's it's a good question um, because I, I, the sort of cultural impact begins to be created in the context of the folio itself. There are four poets who add commendatory verses, dedicatory verses, basically, in, in the front matter of the book. Like a blurb. Um, yeah, today. in a sense. I mean, they're, they're poetry sort of celebrating Shakespeare and mm-hmm. celebrating the, the book itself. So more like an introduction, with a new introduction by so-and-so. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And But also, you can imagine them as, as being promotional, you know, trying mm-hmm. to get this book to sell, right? Um, and in those verses, they talk about the book uh, in terms of a kind of monument that, you know, Shakespeare's been dead for seven years and, you know, we have all of his plays or most of his plays at this point and we're going to put it out there and for as long as this book is, is in the world, you know, Shakespeare will live on. So it, it's in 1623 when this sort of cultural legacy really begins um, and now, I mean, you know, the, the book sold for uh, the equivalent of about $212 in today's money um, in 1623. And the last copy to go to auction in 2020 sold for just under $10 million. So that, I mean, that, that's a, sort of more of an economic uh, 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 view of, of the book, but it, it is some index to, to the cultural significance of it as well. Mm. And then there's also just the, the, the sort of counterfactual world of what is a world without Macbeth like? What's a world without Julius Caesar? These, these are plays that some of the language um, phrases that either he invented or... Mm-hmm. Um, grabbed out of popular use and made them famous, made them indelible, mm-hmm. a world in which they may not exist mm-hmm. and the plays may not exist, the stories as we know them may or may not exist. Mm-hmm. H- how do you reckon with that? I don't know. It's 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 difficult to imagine those plays not existing. Um, not having the phrase out, out, damn spot. Yes, yeah, precisely. Um, we... We know, I mean, one way of thinking about this question is that we know that there are other plays that Shakespeare wrote that, that have been lost. Um, there is a play called Love's Labor's Lost, uh, which survives, um, but there is reference in the period 
to another play called Love's Labors One. Um, so presumably this was a two-part play, um, and we we don't have that play anymore. Uh, there is probably another play called Cardinio, uh, which is based on um, Don Quixote, um, and that play too is is gone. So. Um, it's it's difficult to say what it is that we've lost, um, but with the 18 plays that the folio preserves, um, I think just looking at the way the, the 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 stage history of those plays and the adaptations, the film histories, all of the other sort of art that has been created based on those texts. Um, all of that would not exist. So that gives some some sense of, of perhaps what we would have lost. Is there a connection between this folio and the fact that for centuries there has been debate about who wrote what? How much of the, the words attributed to Shakespeare came from him as, as, a, as, as a sole creator? Mm-hmm. Is there a direct connection? Uh, between the folio and... Exactly, because here we have a book mm-hmm. with his name on it with all of his plays. It, it seems mm-hmm. like uh, that would be the sort of the locus of the mm-hmm. <laughs> of the concern. Yes. Yeah, no, and the fact that he it's published seven years after he's dead. So, I mean, he has no sort of, you know, power over the shaping of the first folio itself. Um, it's This, too, is a very complicated question. I would say one thing, uh, that being... Drama, I mean, drama is one of the most collaborative art forms, right? Um, And so it involves actors, it involves, you know, lots of cooperation between multiple individuals. So in that respect, I would say that Shakespeare's plays are necessarily collaborative in nature. Um, But even the writing of the plays um, in the period... um, you know, Shakespeare probably wrote some of his plays entirely on his own, maybe even many of them. He was the principal playwright for his particular playing company. Um, but the usual practice of playwriting in the period involved collaborative writing, often not even like in conjunction with one another. Playing companies would often dictate the subject matter of a play and farm it out to different playwrights mm-hmm. uh, who might be working sort of in isolation. Um, and so um, it ultimately this comes down to not being able to identify word for word what Shakespeare wrote and what somebody else wrote, um, although there are those who have tried to do that. Um, and uh, But I think implicit in your question is also the, the, the authorship question of whether, you know, um, Francis Bacon or Queen Elizabeth or Christopher Marlowe or somebody else um, actually wrote the plays instead of Shakespeare and Shakespeare is just this sort of prop. Um, I, I don't find any uh, merit in that that suggestion whatsoever. Um, so I, I think sh- we can say Shakespeare wrote most of the plays. They were necessarily collaborative um, and uh, it... You know, Shakespeare is kind of the name that we give this body of work, um, while also recognizing that he he wasn't ent- entirely working in isolation. Zooming to the present, uh, in a few minutes we're going to be talking about a new version of Henry the Fourth, Part One, part of a, a long-standing tradition of reappraisal and reimagining of Shakespeare's works, but increasingly by BIPOC artists and playwrights uh, and and directors. Mm-hmm. What do you make of these efforts, and how do they fit into a history at this point mm-hmm. of, of 
thinking about Shakespeare? Mm-hmm. I think I think the brilliant adaptations and uh, rewritings and reimaginings, um, and I think that there is. Uh, historical precedent actually in Shakespeare's day because we have some of the some of the Shakespearean texts that we have for instance um, exist in multiple forms um, radically different forms and so um, there uh, plays in, in Shakespeare's time on the stage would have been cut and rearranged um, and adapted for different contexts and so I, and also to to sort of focus on uh, the appropriateness of the play in particular contexts. And so I think that um, we, we don't need that kind of historical uh, permission, right, to make the adaptations that um, the one Henry IV, for instance, uh, is doing uh, with the play on Shakespeare version. Um, but uh, I think that it it speaks to any criticism of of being purist or you know um, because figured, because there never was a pure time they, they've yes. always been reworked and rejiggered absolutely even from that very period yes Jonathan Walker thanks very much um, th- thanks so much for having me I appreciate it Jonathan Walker is professor of English at Portland State University the creator and lead organizer of the months-long festival known as Shakespeare's first folio 1623 to 2023.